Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters that are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Will Lynch, and I'm the Associate Editor of Resident Advisor. For Soul Clap, the last five years have been extraordinary. Back in 2010, the Boston duo shot to stardom for a number of reasons. There was their fun-loving DJ style, which combined low-slung house with pop, funk, and R&B. There was their partnership with Wolf and Lamb, which pushed both duos forward and gave us a rare double-disc edition of DJ Kicks. And there were those notorious edits, which made DJ weapons out of pop songs by artists like Laid Back and Kanye West. By now, Soul Clap have reached an interesting phase in their career. Their touring schedule has relaxed a bit, and they're spending a lot of time in the studio. Later this year, they'll release a record with funk legend George Clinton, one of their all-time heroes. On a recent afternoon in our office in Berlin, I talked with Charlie and Eli about where they came from and where they might be headed. wasn't there to see it but in Detroit you played um, with George Clinton like your slot was soul clap plus George Clinton at 2:30 or whatever yeah I was just curious like what how exactly did that work this is a was a performance that we've been working up towards for a long time and rather than I think the typical soul clap tag team I decided I wanted to sing backup Eli kind of held it down DJing instrumentals and George sang and emceed. Charlie, Sadi Ali. Yeah. Sadi is George's nephew, and George's granddaughter, Tanisha, Candy Apple Red, also sang backup. So it was cool with George and then three backup singers. What was really interesting was that we were trying for weeks to get a hold of George to figure out how we were going to do it because we were billed but we hadn't exactly figured out the show. Like Eli and I had an idea of what we wanted to do, but we wanted to run it by George. And George was off touring. He was in Ibiza doing the um, Dance Music Awards IMS. thing there, the IMS. And it wasn't until we were on a private jet from upstate New York to Detroit with George that we actually got a chance to discuss what was going to go down. And he was just like, oh, yeah, we're just going to... You know, we'll just go feel it out. And then when we were actually up there on stage, he's like, ah, we don't really know what the fuck we're doing, but here we are. So, you know, it worked. It was cool. We did one of our new songs with him, which was great. And I mean, just the, the crowd was, it was pretty incredible. Just to be there, hand on my shoulder. George's hand on my shoulder, doing One Nation Under a Groove. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, did you spend much time with George up until then? Yeah, yeah, we've spent, uh, spent a good amount of time with him now. We had some time with him in Tallahassee, where he lives, where the studios are. And then we had some time in L.A. when we were doing the Red Bull session. And this is what, the third time we hung out? Yeah, I mean, we've been to Tallahassee twice now. But he wasn't there the second time. But he wasn't there the second time, and... Yeah, we so also spent some time. Eli got to go to the show in Boston. Yeah. We were both at the oh, show. Yeah, we hung out in New York. In at, New York yeah, at BB King's. King's. Part of this experience meeting George Clinton has been a long running documentary that we're kind of tentatively calling the Funk Summit, where E Funk meets P Funk. So to do a lot of this, we've there's been these like interviews going on. In BB Kings in New York, we finally got our sit down with George interview, and I think at that moment we kind of transcended into a into a friendship out of yeah. this kind of working relationship into a, a friendly thing. I think he finally we start understanding each other. I think definitely, yeah. For, it really felt like we turned a corner for this Detroit thing. Like just the 
leading up to it, hanging out with him, the discussions of what it was going to be, and then the performance and after the performance was all really just, we really, yeah, finally understood each other, I think. You guys are making the documentary? Uh, this guy, Chris Tarantino, is making the documentary. He's actually the one who linked us up with, with the P-Funk crew initially by his friend, Chuck the Funk Fishman, who is this, uh, this Jewish kid. He's older now, but he, when he was like 16, he ran away from home to tour with, with P-Funk. And George put his nephew, Sadi, in charge of taking care of Chuck because they were kind of close to the same age. Sadi's a little bit older, but so he's like, who's this, who's this white kid I got to take care of now? So he's like driving with Chuck everywhere. And basically they became like brothers, like best friends. And so through Chuck, we, we were introduced to Sadi. And Chris, once he heard it was actually happening, he just really, he, you know, he followed us down to Tallahassee the first couple of times and then to LA and also on this trip. So he's kind of like, you know, he's a friend of, of all of us. So it's been very organic and natural, not like camera in your face, more like, you know, just hanging out and catching those, the, the moments. It's been almost two years running or more than two years running this documentary. So yeah. we haven't seen any of it. So it's exciting. <laughs> he's working on editing it now. I think I it's going to yeah. be great. Well, it's, we're, we're putting the release out in the fall and ideally the documentary is coming out at the same time. So. This is all going on on our end while with George Clinton, there's a new George Clinton or Funkadelic album. It's a Funkadelic album, right? I think so, yeah. Funkadelic album coming out called Shake the Gate. That's also tagged onto George's biography, autobiography, that's titled, Hey George, ain't all this funkin' kind of hard on you? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's the other time. I, I DJ'd the book signing party in Manhattan a couple that was months like a, ago. The book's not out yet, though. So that was like, what, a special preview thing? It must have been. It was yeah. this, I think the signing, even though the book, yeah, even, you know. If you think <laughs> They're that, kind of a mess. <laughs> they're a mess. You know, yeah. You know, they would, it's what you would think that it would be like to work with Parliament Funkadelic, you know? But what's so cool is like, they have this really family family vibe you know it's like George his, his actual family but then like the whole band family and it's really similar to, to our whole crew love thing you know everybody looks out for each other everybody tours together everybody makes music together so that's been something that's been it's really special to get to see that and see that they've been doing it for that long this long and George has always been so committed to his people and not just I'm George Clinton fuck y'all it's really cool were you um, consciously like inspired by that family vibe and fun? Or does that have any? You know, was that an influence on the crew love vibe? The crew love thing is, is kind of built itself outside of that, but I think it's been inspiring to see that. And in a funny way, it made us value our crew even more. You know, like we've been welcomed into that family, and that's really great, and we love spending time with them. But crew love is our real family. These are like our brothers and sisters. So it's made us value the crew love thing even more. Another parallel is the many different names that represents the same Parliament Funkadelic thing. Like one, it's Parliament Funkadelic is George Clinton, it's Bootsy Collins, Eddie Hazel, P-Funk like All-Stars. P-Funk All-Stars. And similar with us, with Crew Love, like, you know, one time we're Soul Clap, one time I'm Lonely C, one time he's Bamboozle, he's Eli Gold, there's Baby Prince, who is also Gotti from Wolf and Lamb, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different names and aliases, but it's all the same creative source you know that's cool why does that work for you you know why does that strike you as like the way to do it i would think that you know it's an opportunity to explore different sides of yourself and kind of satisfy all the different creative needs yes yeah, so i guess you guys have been this family unit for a while but since you have a lot of freedom inside that family unit you know there's a lot of room for possibility and stuff totally mm -hmm. not to mention that both wolf and lamb philosophy and our philosophy for their record label and ours and our artists and their artists is just to kind of do what you feel just like just do you it's never been a pressure for a particular sound it's encouraging exploration and you know experimentation and risk-taking but in everybody's own way you're not it's never like you should do this it's more like this reminds me of this or this inspires what you're doing now makes me think of this why don't you listen to for some inspiration and then the next time you want it to be something totally different. You never want to go in the studio trying to do the same thing each time. And that's really, I think, 
all, all the artists push each other. That's what's so great about having this family is because we're, we're comfortable. There's no ego involved. So we can be honest and tell each other how we feel about the music and really continue, push each other to continue growing. Do you guys still have that? Um, you had the wire, right? Like yeah, the file sharing. Can you still got the wire. That? We still got the wire. You know, it's more on Dropbox now than than you send it. We still send stuff through you send it, but I mean, I think it's more like it developed more into like kind of an email list, message board, something where we just kind of send funny, funny YouTube videos, talk shit, and then send music when we have cool music that we want to share. Definitely a lot of shit talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like high school jokes toilet toilet humor toilet humor toilet baby humor it plays a creative role though right like you send each other like stems and stuff like that or use it yeah to... well it definitely happens that you know if someone's sharing sharing their stems for someone to remix or like has a new track anybody can anybody in the crew can download it so if you hear something that inspires you you just start working on it it's not like uh it makes it very loose and i guess the shit talking and everything also serves kind of a creative role that it's like you're all you know, still buddies all the time, even if you're not, you know, if you haven't seen each other in a while and stuff, you, yeah. you maintain this kind Stay of... Stay connected. To go back to George Clinton for a second, yeah, you know, in a way, I'm sure you're um, used to this kind of thing by now, but I imagine it's a bit surreal that your lives would have led you to a point where you're collaborating with George Clinton, you're comparing your, you know, your crew to the way his crew works and stuff. Like, I don't know, like you, it seems like you guys have been into this stuff yeah. for so long. It is, does it feel strange that you, you know, you're just working with George Clinton on stuff? When, when, I was when I was 10, 11, 12, I was in summer camp in um, Hancock, Vermont, at a camp called Camp Kill Elite. And there was a camper band. And the, my two camp counselors, Ben and Dave Harris, in, introduced me to Parliament Funkadelic. And we had a camper band that was a cover band. And I, was, I had the, the role of George Clinton. So it's been in my life since preteen and the thought of, I mean, it, we definitely paid homage to it all the time with E-Funk and the E-Funk mixtape and just the, the idea, the inspiration, E-Funk, G-Funk, but to actually break through and like be down there, like to have Saidi knight us as, you know, Funkadelic. It's like complete, uh, like, Beyond any beyond dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. There was actually a point about a year and a half ago where I felt like I had achieved any goal that I could have ever possibly wanted out of a career in music. And I really needed to like think like, what the fuck else I want to do like with this career? It's surreal. But I think now it's just exciting because now we get to work with all these great you know musicians that also got to touch the grace you know like for example we were just hanging out with amp fiddler and amp was touring with parliament funkadelic for you know a while there as the keyboard player or in new york we were hanging out with lady Kier from delight and delight used you know members of funkadelic to tour those the albums. Album, bootsy was was all over it right you know there's this great umbrella of amazing talent that's gone on you know 40 years that's cool it's making our sound really exciting there's going to be a lot of cool music in the next year or so i mean this is like you know it's all these studio musicians being able to have real real accomplished musicians on the on the tracks it's a whole new amazing step so that's like a concrete thing that's come out of it for you guys is um you have all these connections for live studio musicians yeah well not only that but we've recorded the ep that we that we're doing with george some of the songs will be on his album and then you know there's some other ones that that are special for the ep but the other times that we were recording in tallahassee with the younger musicians that aren't necessarily in the parliament funkadelic the band but they're just kind of hanging out in their studios like young vocalists and you know some of them are kids are the kids of of funkadelic band members or their friends, yeah, as well as active members of the band. Like for example, the keyboard player now Danny Bedrosian, who's also from Boston and went to Berkeley, um, which is a cool connection. But like he's just laced us up with just all that nasty synth yeah. disgustingness that's going to be really prominently featured in a lot of this 
music like forthcoming. We kind of have to figure out how to make it fit together and how to release it. But it's raw, all the raw materials. It's dope. There. It's so dope. It's like you know, variety of tempos. It's dance. It's you know more Funk. poppy, funky R and B. It's great. Do you kind of feel like um, you're at the you know threshold of sort of like a new period for for soul clap for your crew i think so yeah i feel it a lot it's inspired me a, a lot to explore like singing on our music a lot more and kind of just going for it it's given my my balls have grown <laughs> they're big balls now i've got big grown folks balls now <laughs> how are your balls you like still the same size <laughs> as um, long as they're not as long as they're you know hanging in the right way they're content. still distended yeah, yeah. <laughs> from where i stand it seems like you're painting a picture that's pretty different from um it's like you know the past like five years or so since things kind of took off for you guys i've seen you mainly as like djs um but it seems like you're kind of entering into a more you know complex like uh, i think I, we've been working we've been working really hard with the whole crew love thing with Wolf and Lamb to kind of dig our own little path away from just dance music, just club music. I mean, like our album was really an attempt to do that. I don't know if we accomplished it fully, but it was like our first pushing out into actually writing songs. And then in the show, you know, our, the crew love show is a big part of the concept is that it's a hybrid of a party and a concert. So there's all the live performances and there's, you know, in DJ interludes, and then there's a party, the DJ party at the end. So I think it's, we've been working really hard to, to be more musical and to be deeper than just club music. And I think now finally this is having the, all these opportunities that have come together in the last two years, I think now we're finally ready to pull it all together into a new phase, to a new stage. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I, I think also, I definitely get ahead of myself with the excitement of the P-Funk thing. And then, you know, in, in kind of sitting here realizing that so much of that, the next phase has to do with being inspired by the rest of the crew love guys and watching the development of like No Regular Play or, you know, the Nick new Monaco. young guys, Nick Monaco and Navid Azadi, like coming out of their DJ background and taking it to the stage. That's just been really just just amazing pillow talk also just watching them become monsters that's cool gremlins they've become gremlins, gremlins. <laughs> actually they've always been gremlins <laughs> yeah it seems like you always kind of compared to the djs you always kind of had club music a little bit at arm's length i remember the first mix i ever heard from you guys a long long time ago in boston um was like half kind of like pop and r&b and playing like r&b tracks at watergate and stuff like that like it seems like you always kind of wanted to you know, you had this other side of things you, you were trying to bring into the picture, you know? It's, it's really funny. I mean, we spent so much of the early 2000s forced to play hip hop and, you know, more pop music in clubs in Boston. And we were always trying to sneak in house and sneak in dance music. And now the world has so flipped that it's like, you were always trying to sneak in slow music. You're trying to sneak in like old school hip hop and R&B and pop. In the same way that, and people, you know, and people sometimes look at you funny in the same way that it was in Boston, in the same way, in the opposite yeah. way of that, that, that it used to be. It's really ironic. It's funny. It's funny that dance music has so taken over the world. How are you finding the um, dance music scene in Boston these days? It's really vibrant. It's great. I mean, there's still a lot of the same, the same problems that were there before. There's no mid-sized venues. There's almost no venues still that do dance music on the weekends. They're still scared of it or not interested in it. I mean, sure, you can go to a club, a bigger club and hear EDM, but like, and you get little sprinklings in there, like maybe Claude Von Stroke at one of these more bottle service cheesy clubs or stuff like that. But the underground is still really underground. That's Boston. At least the powers that be are a little bit more supportive. Like Eli DJed with the new mayor of yeah. Boston. Yeah. <laughs> the Menino's out, the old mayor. Like and the new mayor of his name is, oh shoot, how am I forgetting his name? He's great. I mean, he's totally, clearly he's doing it for reasons of, to stimulate business and, and actual 
economic growth in Boston, but he's open to the arts and the creative and the music. He dropped the ceremonial first beat at Together Fest. That's when I that's when I DJed with him. So um, did he scratch with the CDJ? Yeah, he was he was scratching a little bit. It's funny. <laughs> Yo, he's got crab scratch style. <laughs> So it's a really positive step. However, you know, they, they tried to pass a resolution to extend the bars and clubs till 4 a.m. And it was still heavily overturned. So it's Puritan town, Puritan state. When did that get voted out? That was, was like a few weeks ago. Yeah, even though the, Marty Walsh is the mayor's name. Shout out Marty Walsh. He was pushing really hard for it, but city council, bullshit. So, you know, it's tough. There's always going to be the same struggles there, I think, the because it's such a student-oriented place, very transient, people come and go. So it's hard to actually build something really, really long-term. But I mean, musically, it's really incredible. And now there's finally artists getting recognition and getting touring the world. Like John Barrera just had that amazing piece on RA. I was so happy about that. And Khan is really killing it now. He has his own edit label. He had his album on BBE. So he's touring more and more too. So I'm actually getting like goosebumps thinking about them. So like, it's really exciting. So more important than anything, finally, musician, electronic musicians from Boston are getting global recognition, which is such a huge step. The Wednesdays we used to do also is like, it's like doing well. It was like ghost town for us for years. Yeah. Unless you had a big DJ, you know, and you just did resonance. It was, it was impossible. But now it's, there's like nice crop of young kids, good looking, cool, down for fun. It's great. You know, it's just like, you know, townies. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still midweek techno? It's called Reset now. Mm. Randy Deshays kind of took over when we left. So When did you guys start that night, midweek techno? Well, that was, what was it called before it was midweek techno? Mm. The thing is the Wednesday at Phoenix Landing had been going since the 90s. Yeah. Okay. As a electronic music night. It had gone through many different resident DJs and, and styles. And like each time kind of the torch was passed. It got a new name or a new... So Pat Before us was night. Pat Fontes. And it was... Shit. But it was a really sign of the times, though, that, like, saying techno in the in the name of the night was, you know, that's, like, a move away from what was dominating, which was kind of more like the early 2000s, like, Derek Carter... Bumpy, bumpy house. house. I mean, that was when we were looking to Berlin. We never had been here. And looking to Europe and all this really post-minimal, you know, like when it kind of went really housey. Perlon was incredible and really experimenting and adding this real warm live feel to it. And so we were like, oh, well, this is the techno. This is different. This is underground. I always think about, like you were saying before, there's these challenges that are always be there. But it's almost like you wonder if there's something particularly inspiring about what you just said, like you're in this place and you're looking over to Europe and the fact that you don't even have that much firsthand experience, like maybe almost makes it more, gives it more mystique or like kind of captures your imagination a little bit more or something, you know? Definitely. I mean, I think we really looked at, wow, Berlin, wow. We would have DJs come who were living here, you know, and just thought it was like, you know, this cool electronic music paradise, which it kind of, is <laughs> so it's cool i mean I, I don't think i've it lost any of the mystique once i was here you know i still at least those first few years was really everything just so much happening you could do, see anything do anything anywhere so cool yeah people definitely will talk shit about things changing getting too popular but you know it's still still pretty wild over here you know yeah yeah i think it's interesting like the Berlin, Panorama Bar, whatever, Bar 25, to someone that has never been there, where it's like in your imagination, like that's almost the most inspiring thing of all. And that's, you know, people (laughs) that grow up in a place like Boston, that's the thing that keeps you going, you know, is this sort of like idea of like, what could that possibly be like? Yeah, there was definitely a few years where I was like that. We just didn't have any idea. Eli, you're back in Boston now, right? I was back in Boston. I actually just moved to New York. So So we're both both in New York now, Mm -hmm. finally. We can finally get in the studio and finish our next album. It's really mm-hmm. exciting. Does it feel like you're kind of settling back down after like a crazy few years or is it still kind of the same tempo? Well, for me, going back to Boston, I mean, my wife was was in graduate school. So that was definitely a beginning of settling down like, you know, a year and a half, two years ago when we moved back there. And then when Charlie moved to New York, 
last April. I, that was the beginning of your settling down, right? And I think yeah. for the last couple of years, we've really, you know, we didn't get into this when we were super young. We were already almost 30. So I think we pretty quickly realized that we needed to be a little bit grounded and not just tour all the time if we were going to build a little longevity and like focus on music and focus on doing it right rather than just going, going, going. So it's been a slow learning process um, of how to, you know, we still want to be playing lots of shows and enjoying it and, and flying around and sharing our music, but also having time to for ourselves so we can really enjoy it, you know, be rested, be healthy. I, I'd say quite personally that, that I burnt myself out in the first chunk of our early career and I was desperate for something to cling on to and just relax and, and also get that grounding. But I feel like also like a new wave of curiosity to explore some of these amazing places that we've now been a few times. Like we just got to South Africa, finally. We're really cracking Asia in new ways. Like there's a lot of for me, I think also just like a lot more exploring and it's a lot more fun again. Hitting new new markets is so cool. Getting to play a city for the first time. Really, that's a feeling you can only get that first time in that city, right? I mean, you can never really recreate it. You can find a place that you love playing and that you make a lot of friends and you enjoy going to. And But that first time is always such a mystery. But shit, man, when you never unpack your bags and... It's just going, going, going. Like it was pretty crazy. It's a crazy lifestyle. Well, and you were like spending part of the year in Berlin and part of it in Miami or something yeah, like yeah. that. That was great, though. I mean, getting the amazing Berlin summer and the beautiful Miami winter. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, trying to get more time in Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, you said uh, you didn't really get started until you were almost thirty. But um, when you say like you didn't get started, do you mean like? At like properly touring a lot? Yeah, well, we started touring what, like 27 that year. That was it. So that's like, what, five years ago or so? I mean, we had been, you know, doing our thing in Boston. We'd been throwing parties. We've been writing music since around like 2006, like seriously since 2006. But then, yeah, the crazy touring started in, in 2009. Yeah, five years ago. What made that kick off? crazy cosmic luck <laughs> i mean a lot of right place at the right time i mean not wolf and lamb really yeah like we had put all this hard work in we've been tr struggling so hard to dj we've been learning learning boston helped us build this foundation that was really unique that no one else has this combination of dance music and pop music in the same way that we do from djing all these clubs in boston and then at, you know everybody knows shopping malls and weddings and all this stuff but then the moment where Wolf and Lamb was basically looking for their next step out of techno and minimal and bringing soul into dance music. And we met them right at this moment when we had started getting really good at writing edits. So this connection, right when they were, you know, getting RA label of the month and blowing up, we came together. And so that timing when I think the whole industry was looking for this an infusion of a new sound and we linked up with a crew that was the right platform and that made so much like sense to personally and creatively and that was the what really kick-started it those that first edit record that love light and conscious that wolf and them put out on wolf and them black was really i think really what it what it was what kick-started us I, I would say also just like the hail mary past was was extravaganza that's kind of when like the world really got behind that edit yeah and i would also want to shout out gully from the geist agency because she just she, she saw it in she us. blew us up yeah and she's done that for a lot of big names in dance music and she's an expert at taking a new talent and exposing them and, and she's definitely one of the best in the game so we got really lucky mm -hmm. about djing malls and weddings and all that stuff so when you guys were younger and you didn't have, you know, your foot in the door on like, you know, good gigs and whatnot, what, I mean, well, maybe so you're maybe saying you playing Macy's is not a good gig. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just, it, it's interesting to me, like, um, when you're playing weddings and Macy's and stuff at that time, were you thinking of it? Like, we want this to lead to like eventually playing 
fabric or whatever? Or was it just <laughs> were you just screwing around? And There's so many steps that want It's like such a long process. I mean, like I started mo doing mobile DJing. You know, when I was 15 years old, I had a DJ <laughs> business. I never had another job. Once I, I worked in, in like a drugstore near my parents' house, so I could save up and buy my turntables. After that. I've never had another job. Other Wait, than so you're DJ. saying drugs and music drugs is all and you music know. Drugs music is all I know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, this is just what we did to survive, you know? Before we were doing Soul Club, we had another production company with another partner. And we had a moment, this was around 2006, that we were like, wait a second. We, and Charlie and I had always been into house music, and that was our connection. That's how we came together. But then we were also doing the mobile thing as our business to make a living. And we realized, we said, wait a second. Do we really want to be some 40-year-old bar mitzvah DJs? Like, <laughs> the direction we're going, if we continue in this direction, sure, we'll be DJs, but it's not what we imagined being a DJ as, you know? I mean, at that time, too, there wasn't this global culture of, like, people touring and the way they're touring. It wasn't this dominant music. So, I mean, sure, it would be a dream to play these clubs, you know? I don't think we ever imagined it actually happening at that moment. It was just like, okay, well, let's make music. We need to make music now. It's the only way we're going to have a chance to do this beyond just playing in these parties in Boston and these gigs in Boston. So we sold the, our shares of this DJ company, this mobile DJ promotion company. So sorry, so the mobile DJ thing is like people would hire you to, to play at you know, their event. Right. We were like an entertainment one stop yeah. because we did everything from mobile DJing to bars and if we were lucky nightclubs promoting doing the promotion and bring the people in. but promotion for clubs as well as tanning salons <laughs> like anything any marketing that would hire us like we would work hustling or just hustling. we were hustling we also had a, like equipment rentals that we would do yeah go set we, up speakers for people <laughs> we would have internship programs for northeastern university students to come in that wanted to be in the entertainment industry we were scraping but i mean it's cool it seems like you know you got kicks out of that like just it was fun we were in our early 20s it was really you know yeah. it's fun it it's was good, good to good be self-employed we were throwing like underground house events in boston we started around that time like early 2000s too so that was like on the side but this is like our partner would always yell at us because we throw this party and lose money yeah you're like what are you doing we're like we have to do this we were, so finally we just needed to have our creative side we're like you know fuck this we've been do running this business however many five years or something and like seriously for five years and we, we had to see what would happen we said okay we're done with this we have enough connections to dj malls and stuff like that which isn't terrible and we can do during the day so our nights are free compare we can survive off this money and get in the studio every night and so we spent a year like that before the the edits and everything that kick started we put out records on airdrop more like kind of like house housey techno stuff techno -y house so that that was like the step we accepted that we weren't going to achieve anything serious you know anything really creatively rewarding and artistic if we continued on the path we were on and so we decided to risk it and go on this and if it didn't work out we were like well we're going to try this if it doesn't work out maybe we need to find something else to do yeah. but luckily it worked out it really worked out <laughs> and then the wolf and lamb thing was um you guys were just hanging out at the marcy or something it was just like you met them socially first yeah Zeb was actually hitting on Charlie's on Charlie's girlfriend. Yeah, there was this festival in New York called Mini Tech. Yeah, I was there. Was, you were there? Yeah. That, so this that was, was a, a terrible, terrible weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so like, Mini Rex. We like to call it Mini Rex. <laughs> our our boys from Airdrop. Well, Henry from Airdrop was working, helping out, doing a lot of the logistics. And you know, the, these were the people that first believed in us, Paolo and, and Henry from, from Airdrop. So we were there hanging out. Henry had his foot in the door in New York. And you know, we had seen Wolf and Lamb t-shirts, maybe like on people, like I promise I'll change t-shirts. Wolf and Lamb. Or um, since when did Jews make techno? Like all the slogans at the various American electronic music like But wait, festivals. the first time I heard of Wolf and Lamb, I was searching the internet we were trying to like maybe do music for hotels and restaurants, you know, like musical programming. We thought maybe this was a business we could explore. And I was just Googling to see what the competition was. And I found the Marcy Hotel. I was like, wait a second, these guys Wolf and Lamb are doing this soundtrack for this hotel. I didn't realize it was fake, you know? It was like no one really does the first thing. Because it. It. it was like the Wolf and Lamb website 
looked like a hotel. They had the Mar yeah the Marcy Hotel actually like separate website and the Wolf and Lamp site, and it said music by Wolf and Lamp. So I was like, oh wow, these guys are doing music for a real hotel. This is cool. And then I started listening to music. And I'm like, whoa, this music's incredible. So yeah, so we were at the fest, and word was like there was an after party in Brooklyn at the Marcy, and I remember going there with my ex girlfriend at the time. We were, we were kind of like, oh, are we hanging out? Oh, we're hanging out. All right, we're going to the party. I remember I went in the wrong door and I went into what was our friend SM and Etty's apartment, which is on the second floor, which is now our friend Brandon and Smirk and Itamar's apartment. And I remember going in there, there's nobody in the apartment, but there was a half smoking joint sitting on um, the counter. So I, st <laughs> I stole that shit right away. And I was like, whatever, went downstairs. And yeah, Zev in his like very Zevy, like kind of sleazy way started hitting on my on my ex. But that was like that's the door the, the door that opened because I was like, oh, I've got this guy's attention, sort of. So, so you yeah, knew who he was. You knew who he was. Well, I mean, yeah, there was like you know who are these guys? These elusive characters, you know. There's like you know at the time it was Gotti and Zev. There was you know Lee Curtis. DJing, Sean Seth, Reeves, Sean Reeves, Seth Troxler. I was like, "Where's Seth? When are you gonna play? Oh, play later. I'll play later." You know. And then out in the when they had the courtyard open, like all types of dance music. People it was were really there. a who's who. Of I the mean, like industry at that point. There was Martin Butrig. I remember Loco Dice is there. Maybe even Richie, like walking around because of all these people that had flown in to do this big. This this is like one of the first big underground festivals in New York, even though it was a to, complete and, fucking disaster. Yeah, we should clarify that the main thing is that everyone flew in to play this festival and the festival hardly even happened. Yeah. Like half of it got shut down and everything. Yeah. So, so there are all these DJs walking around New York looking for something to do and they all supposedly converged on, on the Marcy Hotel. Yeah. Party. yeah, this was a really, it was crazy. One for the history books. <laughs> so, so we never met Gotti at that night, but we met Zev and gave him the edits the love, light, and conscious. We started talking on on Skype, yeah. right? And, and then sent them. And then when they, at that time, they were really exploring meeting new artists and all this stuff. And this is how they did it. You know, they would be Skyping with their friends and with other artists that they met. And that's how we built our relationship initially. And this was before they actually put out the first record on the label. They just had the digital label. And then they put out that Lee Curtis record. And we did a review and giveaway on our blog. That's when we were really focusing on the Soul Clap blog as like a, you know, music hub. Then we heard no regular play, and then they heard our edits, and they started a whole side label just to put out the edits. That was it. Yeah. I, I think at that time, Wolf and Lamb's big record was a side of penis. Yeah. Which I think if anyone hasn't heard that, yeah, they go should go check record. out. That's awesome. Check that one out. That was still play that one sometimes. It's cool. I guess that was like the fall or something in two thousand. Yeah, like maybe September two thousand seven. No, it's 2008. 2008. Yeah. 2008. So how did you notice it sort of things picking up momentum? Like uh, you release these edits and then like you just start getting like good the, offers. The edits came out in May 2010, which was also Paolo had moved to, to Europe, right? That summer he was moving back to Europe after going to, going to university in the U.S. And he was like, okay, I'm going to organize you a tour in Europe. So that was our first time we came to Berlin. That was like later on in that summer. And... He had organized it really off the airdrop releases, getting us recognition from that. Then all of a sudden people heard these edits and the whole schedule filled up with gigs. So that was like the combination of the two, Paolo putting in that groundwork. But also simultaneously through Wolf and Lamb, we had built these, these new bridges with Sean Reeves, who we had booked at our night and in Boston and with Seth and with Lee and Ryan and they were doing Soul Shower and we would work all weekend on these on these edits or these weird tracks and then send them over on Skype and then we'd get like feedback immediately because they were like, oh yeah, we played your edit at Soul Shower. At Soul Club, Div Club Divisioner, that was yeah. their Tuesday night they did for a long time. So that's, you know, I think they helped us out a lot. Yeah, Seth playing our records at, at Sunday School in Miami, that WMC, Every party we went to, when they were playing, they would play at least one of our records, any of those guys. So that was huge for us. And then also I remember Lee Curtis playing both of the edits at, at the Movement Festival in Detroit. Yeah. So like, you know, that still is big, you know, getting the DJ plays. Yeah, I just remember it was funny because I moved to Berlin around the same time. And then I remember when I saw you guys, whatever, at 
Miami or something. It was just like when we last seen each other, like none of this stuff had happened. And then it was like less than a year later and you were both like, you know, you were visibly like really busy touring international DJs. It was just, it was kind of surreal. It was such a big change had taken place in, in a really, really short Yeah, from May, from May 2009, when we put out the edits to May 2010, we went from, you know, no one really knowing us to touring like crazy. That next summer, 2010, we moved, we lived in Berlin for the summer and just went all over Europe, Japan. It was a crazy summer. So do you feel like there was kind of this like crazy, crazy momentum? Is that sort of like, is it still going? Like, do you still play gigs at that rate or are you sort of like, you know, getting into a more relaxed rhythm? I think we've chosen a more relaxed rhythm. However, we're grateful and fortunate enough to still have a growing demand that I think is even diversified into like larger festivals and more commercial like possibilities. That's a whole nother conversation, like whether or not to, to accept or not. But yeah, I mean, um, we've got some loyal fans out there, so we're, we're lucky. Is it hard to know how to play it? Like when you're in the midst of things taking off like that, you know, is it confusing? Like how exactly to proceed? I think that, you know, Charlie hit the nail on the head, like with Goli and then also with Gotti and Zev, who are like the most patient people probably in the entire music industry. You know, they're always preaching, just wait, just wait, don't rush it, just wait. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Just wait. And Gully, who always made sure that we were taking the right opportunities and not every opportunity. Having those people kind of as, as mentors, as guides, I think helped a lot. I think me more than Charlie, like I really have a strong vision of staying independent. And I don't want to say underground because that word is so limiting, but like independent and just creative, you know, and like that being the number one priority. Like I always knew that and that having that support from, from the Wolf and them guys and Gully to, to do that and not just take every opportunity and just was really important. I don't, I don't mean Charlie doesn't want to be creative. No, I but he's like, right. I, I, mean, I always understood this. I always had faith in this in a way that I've really, I've really deep. dreamed of selling out <laughs> for like my whole life. So, you know, win casinos, like come see about me. <laughs> No, I mean, like, shit, man. Back in 2006, when it was like, okay, are we going to do this? Part of it was, look, we're never going to take another fucking request again. Like, if we ever have to do something that's not... I got the tattoo. <laughs> if ever have to do something that's not, like, that doesn't feel right, that we don't like it, you know? Because there's a lot of DJs out there that that will say that they don't like the music that they play. Like, that's a real fucking problem to have you know it's it can be difficult successful you know djs this like yeah money djs like it's already difficult enough sometimes to like not want to be touring not want to be out late at night but to not even like the music you play that'll suck your soul dry so you guys want to name some names <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know bugs bunny <laughs> sylvester <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a very real thing. Like, I mean, if you're playing all the time, you've been doing it for years, it's not guaranteed that your relationship with everything is going to stay fresh or that you're going to stay as excited as you were when you were younger. And then, you know, you still, it's how you make a living. I had an interesting conversation with uh, Craig Richards, who, in my opinion, is like one of the greatest DJs. Like, he's just magical. And he was like, you know, honestly, I've never really given a shit about being a DJ. And I was so inspired by that. Like he just doesn't even fucking care. And it's, I think by just having his mind on other things, he's just fluid. Sticks. He always is kind of in his own little creative zone. That's why Craig's so good. Yeah. Something you guys said earlier, he said, um, the Funkadelic crew is like, there's this family of musicians and then there's like their kids become musicians too. Um, is there a part of you that feels like you and the whole crew love crew? Like you could just turn into this extended family over the years. Like you could just sort of chug along like this, you know, forever and ever. I hope so. Yeah. It feels like it. Eli, you're probably going to have kids before me. Maybe you should set them up with I mean, some turntables you know, to, to kind of go back to this, like what you were saying about the pace of everything. Like I said, we know we're already in our early thirties, early mid thirties. And like, you know, I'm married, I'm definitely planning on having kids at some point sooner rather than later. 
And so I actually talked to, there's a lot of DJs that have kids that are, that are still touring or finding other ways to, to balance it, to still make a living. But once you're on this path as a touring DJ, it's really hard to swing in other directions. You know, you can start a label, but you're never really gonna be able to put enough work into it for that to be something that's gonna make money. And everybody knows labels don't really make money anyway if you're gonna put out music that you like. You could, you know, maybe go into radio, but how do you make a living doing radio, you know? Like, you could be a producer, but for me, it's more like, I mean, I, lo I love making music, but I love DJing. This is, I'm not trying to go in, into producing some artist I've never met before or something so I can pay my bills, you know? It's, it's tough, so once you're on this path, it's like, it's figuring out how you can continue on it, but also be a normal person, you know? Also have a normal real life beyond it. Where was I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> that's the whole name of the game. I mean, I think that's a challenge that all DJs face when they get to certain age, especially if they want to have kids and everything. But Anybody who travels for a living, right? This is like what you, you hit an age, you hit a point. Where you're like, you always really want to enjoy what you're doing, right? You, and you also really want to enjoy the traveling part of it. And that's why that balance, like not going out all, like, you know, spending enough time at home that you're not exhausted so you can actually enjoy where you're going and, and be present is a big part of it. Where are we? <laughs> I've given up on being normal. You know? I just don't think it's possible anymore. It's, we've seen too many weird things. You know? I On the flip side, I wouldn't mind producing artists. That's like seems like a joy. I feel like the, the possibilities are, are still pretty limitless, which is a good place to be. We just had dinner in uh, Ibiza like before playing Pasha, and Kevin Saunderson was one of the... DJs and he was there with his son who's now like 20, Dante, yeah. 20 22 and they, they were actually DJing tag team as a father-son combo which I thought was really really fucking cool that must be so satisfying to like be on the road with your son and like play gigs together it's pretty cool yeah definitely yeah there's definitely hope 